I'd like to take a moment to invite you to join us for our first ever Vision Night, which will take place this coming Thursday, January 25th at 7 o'clock right here in the sanctuary. We're going to come together in order to remember our past, to celebrate our present, and to anticipate our future together. Many of you are new to Central, and you may still be trying to figure out who we are as a church, what makes us tick, what is it that we're trying to accomplish Others of you have been here for years and you've seen the renewal that God has wrought in our midst firsthand. And yet you still may also be wondering, now that we've finished our Restore campaign and launched Resound Project, what's next? What else might God do in and through us in order to make a difference in our city and in our world? So this is a meeting that you don't want to miss. I'd encourage you to register online and join us Thursday night at 7 o'clock. Today, we're continuing in our series focused on the greatest sermon ever told, Jesus' famous Sermon on the Mount. Now, by now, you probably have heard me say that through the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus is not telling you what you need to do in order to enter the kingdom of God, but rather Jesus is telling you who you become by sheer grace when the presence and power of God come into your life. Or perhaps more accurately, we should say, Jesus is telling us who we become all together as a community. Because the Sermon on the Mount is really not a guide to the individual life. No, the Sermon on the Mount is a guide to authentic Christian community. And that's why we're reading it together. Now, in the passage that is before us today, Jesus returns to the theme of prayer. Previously in the sermon, Jesus taught us how to pray by introducing what we know as the Lord's Prayer. And speaking of which, I wonder if you've seen this video that's been making the rounds recently. A little girl suggests that she knows the name of God. She knows the personal name of God. And do you know what it is? Howard. Howard. And when she's asked, why Howard? Why Howard? She says, rather matter-of-factly, Well, Jesus taught us to pray. Our Father who art in heaven, Howard be your name. Howard be your name. So there you go. Well, as we will see, as we turn to the passage that is before us today, Jesus has some very important things to say about prayer, which can be generally applied to our lives. But... If you pay attention to the context, and as in all things, context is everything, you realize that there are some very specific applications that are going to be important for us to pay attention to. When I mapped out this series months ago, I I thought, well, this passage, Matthew 7, verses 7 to 12, is rather straightforward and simple. There's not much here, and that kind of had me down, because as a preacher, I like a challenge. But then the more I spent time with this passage over the last couple weeks, I realized, ah, there's a lot more going on underneath the surface. So we'll look at these specific applications as well. So here's how I'd like to use our time. As we turn to Matthew 7, I'd like us to consider three things this morning. Number one, the predicament of prayer. Number two, the promise of prayer. And number three, the power of prayer. So if you would, let me invite you to open up a Bible to Matthew chapter 7. You'll find this passage printed on page 812 in the Pew Bible. It's also printed in your order of worship. I'll be reading Matthew 7, verses 7 through 12. Ask, and it will be given to you. 
Seek, and you will find. Knock, and it will be opened to you. For everyone who asks receives, and the one who seeks finds, and to the one who knocks, it will be opened. Or which one of you, if his son asks him for bread, will give him a stone? Or if he asks for a fish, will give him a serpent? If you then, who are evil, know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more will your father who is in heaven give good things to those who ask him? So whatever you wish that others would do to you, do also to them. For this is the law and the prophets. This is God's word. It's trustworthy and it's true and it's given to us in love. Please pray with me. Father, we acknowledge that apart from you, these words would remain nothing more than letters on a page. And so we pray that by your grace, the same spirit that once inspired these words might illuminate them now for us so that your word might catch fire and burn within our hearts, leading us to a real encounter with Jesus. And it's in his name that we pray. Amen. Well, the first thing I want you to notice is that Jesus assumes that we will find ourselves in a predicament which will require prayer. And here he offers some of the strongest reasons, the greatest encouragements for us to pray that we'll probably find anywhere. If we're facing a need, if we're not sure what we're looking for or where to find it, if every door seems to be closed, well, all you have to do is ask. Jesus tells us to ask, to seek, and to knock. And we can understand each step ascending in urgency. To ask simply means to make a general request. But to seek implies that you're not really sure what you're looking for or where to find it. And to knock assumes that you've tried and failed. And despite all your best attempts, every door seems to have been shut in your face. So now you're facing a situation that is beyond your control. You have come to the end of yourself. And you know what? <laughs> That's a good thing. Because when you come to the very end of yourself, that is the place where you meet God. Now, as I said, I'm sure we could all imagine situations in life right now that require asking, seeking, and knocking. But there's a much more specific application of Jesus' words that I'd like to highlight for you, which flow from the immediately preceding verse, verse six. So I apologize, forgive me, I have to briefly recap something I said last week, or else everything I'm about to say is not going to make sense. Now, verse six is a famously difficult passage to interpret, because Jesus says, do not give dogs what is holy, and do not throw your pearls before pigs, lest they trample them underfoot and turn to attack you. Now, what is Jesus saying here? You would not give a Bible, a holy thing, to a stray dog. You would not sprinkle pearls before pigs. Why not? Because imagine what would happen. If a wild pig gobbled up pearls, it would quickly find that those pearls are tasteless and unappetizing. But worse than that, that pig would break its teeth on those pearls, spit them out, trample them underfoot, and turn to attack you. Why? If for no other reason than because you are edible. <laughs> a pig can't eat pearls, but a wild pig might be able to eat you. 
Now, almost everyone interprets these words incorrectly. All the commentators are right that when Jesus speaks of the holy things or the pearls, he's talking about the gospel, the truth from God, the the kingdom of God. But then they wrongly assume that Jesus is saying you should not freely offer the gospel to people who won't appreciate it. You shouldn't offer the gospel to people who won't appreciate it. But none of us appreciates the truth from God. Left to ourselves, left to our own devices, none of us appreciates the gospel. That can't be what Jesus meant. If it were what Jesus meant, well, then he didn't follow his, his own advice because he freely offered the gospel to people who didn't appreciate it. And what did they do? They turned on him and they ate him alive. So Jesus must be suggesting something else. He's not telling us that we should not offer good things or do good deeds to those who might misuse them or reject them because Jesus says the exact opposite in Luke chapter six, verse 35. He says that we're supposed to be like our heavenly father. And what is our heavenly father like? He is kind to the ungrateful and the evil. So he's not telling us that we shouldn't offer the gospel to those who don't appreciate it. What is he telling us? Well, I believe the German pastor, Dietrich Bonhoeffer, is really among the very few who got this verse right. In his book, The Cost of Discipleship, he suggests that there's a massive difference between simply offering the gospel and imposing an ideology. There's a difference between offering the gospel in weakness and in humility and even being willing to suffer alongside that word and trying to impose an ideology upon other people by force. See, one is the way of the disciple, the follower of Jesus. The other is the way of the fanatic, the ideologue, the propagandist. And so just ask yourself, how would you want to be treated? Do you like dealing with ideologues? Fanatics, propagandists, I don't think so, I don't. So what is Jesus warning us against here in verse six? Well, Dallas Willard put it memorably when he said, what Jesus is warning us against is pearl pushing. Don't be a pearl pusher. The most obvious way in which we push pearls is we do What Bonhoeffer told us not to do, we we, we try to impose the gospel on other people by force. Maybe there's someone who's close to you, important to you, and you want them to understand and receive the gospel for themselves. You want them to become a Christian, but rather than turning them on to Jesus, you turn them off to Jesus. Why? Because you're pushing a pearl. See, pearl pushing, it happens in marriages, it happens in friendships, it happens in the workplace, at school. It often happens in the relationship between parents and their children. I once knew a woman who was a deeply committed Christian, but her husband was not. She loved Jesus, and therefore she wanted her husband to love Jesus too. And so what did she do? Well, she constantly gave her husband more books to read and sermons to listen to, but rather than becoming more and more intrigued by the gospel, he became more and more annoyed with her because she was just pushing pearls. You see, if the other person isn't nodding, showing interest, asking follow-on questions, well, then it's very likely that you're simply pushing pearls rather than 
sharing the good news of who Jesus is and what he's done for us. And it's especially easy for us to push pearls on kids. And then we're surprised when they don't want anything to do with us or with the church. Now, don't get me wrong. Of course, there's a place for us to offer correction to our children and instruction and guidance to to teach them the importance of obedience and accountability and responsibility and to to introduce them to the truths of, of Christianity. But there's a very big difference between offering the gospel, training our children in the gospel, and pushing a pearl. We've got to treat our kids like human beings. We've got to give them the space to process their doubts and their questions rather than simply trying to control all their actions. So we can push pearls when we're pushing the gospel on people, but we can also push pearls in lesser matters too. You might have some genuinely good advice for someone who's facing a problem in life. You've got pearls of wisdom that you want to offer. And you want to pass it on to a friend, a neighbor, a coworker, or a classmate, but they can't hear you because you're not listening to them. Pearl pushing is ultimately dehumanizing because you're not really interested in the other person. You're just trying to control their actions through your words. And so Dallas Willard has some helpful words for us to hear when it comes to pearl pushing. He says, our pearls often are offered with a certain superiority of bearing that keeps us from paying attention to those we're trying to help. We have solutions. That should be enough, shouldn't it? And very quickly, some contempt, impatience, anger, and even condemnation slips into our offer. And the very goodness of our pearl may make us think that we couldn't possibly have the wrong attitude toward the intended recipient. Would we be offering them such pearls if our heart were not right? Unfortunately, we just might. It has been done. And how we honestly feel when our pearl is left there on the ground to be walked on by the unenthusiastic recipient will be a pretty good sign of where our heart was in the first place. As long as I am condemning my friends or relatives or pushing my pearls on them, I am their problem. They have to respond to me, and that usually leads to their judging me right back or biting me, as Jesus said. But once I back away, maintaining a sensitive and non-manipulative presence, I am no longer the problem. As I listen, they don't have to protect themselves from me, and they begin to open up. I may quickly begin to appear to them as a possible ally and resource. Now they begin to sense their problem to be the situation they have created, or possibly themselves. Because I am no longer trying to drive them. Genuine communication, real sharing of hearts, becomes an attractive possibility. So what are we supposed to do? Let's say we are facing a real problem. There is a predicament in our life or in the life of someone we love, and all other attempts have failed. And maybe we really do have a pearl to offer the people that are close to us, but we're met with resistance, and we can't seem to break through. What now are we supposed to do when faced with this predicament? And that's easy. 
We're supposed to release the other person into God's hands, and the way in which we do that is through prayer. It's through prayer. And so that brings me to the second point, which is the promise of prayer. Jesus makes these astonishing promises, and and nothing should inspire us to pray more than knowing in advance that we will be heard. These promises are astounding because they're so universal. Look at verse eight. Jesus says, for everyone who asks, receives. The one who seeks, finds. And to the one who knocks, the door will be opened. It's a universal statement. There's no strings attached. How can Jesus possibly mean that? But you see, we need to see the connection back to verse six because what Jesus is telling us is that when faced with a real predicament, the answer to the problem is prayer. And this is what Dietrich Bonhoeffer understood so well. Because he said, if pushing a pearl is trying to impose the gospel on other people by force, then what do you do? You back away and pray. So Bonhoeffer writes, what are disciples to do when they encounter opposition and cannot penetrate the hearts of men? They must admit that in no circumstances do they possess any rights or powers over others and that they have no direct access to them. The only way to reach others is through him in whose hands they are themselves like all other men. And that's why Jesus teaches his disciples to pray. And so they learn that the only way to reach others is by praying to God. Judgment and forgiveness are always in the hands of God. He closes and he opens but the disciples must ask, they must seek and knock, and then God will hear them. They have to learn that their anxiety and concern for others must drive them to intercession. The promise that Christ gives to their prayer is the bravest weapon in their armory. Do you realize that? Do you believe that? Do you believe that prayer is the bravest weapon in your armory? The strongest arrow in your quiver? It is because of the promises that Jesus makes here. Now, Jesus backs up these promises with a series of illustrations that are drawn from everyday life. Can you imagine a scenario where a son comes to his father and he says, I'm hungry. Can can you give me bread? Can you give me fish? I need something to eat. And the father responds by giving his child something that is either inedible or harmful. I mean, imagine if if one of my kids came up to me and said, Dad, I'm really hungry. Could I have some bread? And I responded by saying, well, um, here's something. If you look at it in the right light, it kind of looks like bread. It's sort of earth-toned and it's round. How about a stone? Try breaking your teeth on that. Or if one of my kids came to me and said, Dad, I'm I'm hungry. Could you you give me a fish? And I said, well, here... um, kind of looks like a fish. It has scales. Would you like a snake? Or in the parallel passage, Jesus gives us another image. Imagine a child comes up to me and says, hey, dad, I'm hungry. Could I have an egg? Well, uh, here's, uh, here's something. If it curls up into a ball, it kind of looks like an egg. Would you like a scorpion? No parent would do that. That would be crazy. No parent, if their child asked for something to eat, would give them something either inedible or poisonous. 
And that is the point that Jesus is trying to make is we have even more reason to trust God than we can when we come to him in prayer. But before we go on, as a side note, I want you to notice something here. This is one of those places where Jesus makes an amazing statement about himself in relationship to us, but he says it in passing. He says it so casually, it would be very easy to miss. But when we come across these little statements, we have to stop and consider them. We have to stop and consider them as soon as we spot them. You see, in verse 11, Jesus says, did you notice this? If you then who are evil, know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more will your heavenly father give good things to those who ask him? Now, here, Jesus is telling his disciples and all of us by extension that we are evil. That's not very nice, Jesus. What is he trying to communicate? Well, Jesus is not saying that we are rotten to the core, that we're as bad as we could possibly be, that we are evil, through and through. But what he is saying is that we human beings, we are inherently sinful. We are radically selfish. We've been tainted and corrupted by evil. We're, we're turned in on ourselves. But notice, Jesus doesn't say that about himself. You know, a lot of times people say, well, Jesus never really made the claim that he was God. He never put himself in a category altogether different from us. He, he, he never said he was divine, but that's just not true. And this is one of those examples where it's obvious. Jesus identifies with us in our humanity. Jesus never, ever, ever identifies with us in our sinfulness. I mean, think about this. A preacher, a pastor would never stand in front of a congregation and say, you who are evil, Right? That would be a crazy thing to say because you're not in a category altogether different from me. A pastor always has to say, well, this is true of us as sinful, fallen, evil human beings, but Jesus never identified with us in our sinfulness, only in our humanity. He says, but you who are evil, if you know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more will your heavenly father give good things to those who ask him? But here's the point. When it comes to prayer, if we human beings, as evil and as sinful as we may be, refuse to play devilish tricks on our children, how much more will God give good things to those who ask him? But notice Jesus doesn't say that God will give anything to those who ask him, but God will give good things to those who ask him. He is committed to our good. He will only give us good things. And what a relief. Because if we're really honest with ourselves, we know that we don't know what to pray for sometimes. I mean, think back over your life. I'm sure this is true. This is true in my life. I'm sure it's true in yours. I bet there have been times where you have prayed very specifically, very deliberately for something that you were sure was the right thing, that would be good for you. And it didn't happen. God didn't answer that prayer. And as you look back over your life, you realize that if God had answered that prayer, it would have been a disaster. It would have been the worst thing that could have happened to you. He had something better in mind. See, he's only gonna give you good things. He's not gonna give you anything. Prayer is not like rubbing a magic lamp and God just offers you three wishes, no matter what they are. No, he's so committed to your good, he will only give you good things. And that is such a relief. Because I am confident that there are times in your life when you have prayed 
and you were sure it was right, but you know what you were really praying for? You were saying, God, give me a stone. He said, I'm not gonna give you a stone because it's not gonna fill you. And instead he gave you bread. Or there's a time when you prayed, oh Lord, give me a snake. And he said, no, it's gonna bite you. And so instead he gave you a fish. Or without realizing it, you said, Lord, please, Father, give me a scorpion. But he knew it would sting. And so instead he gave you an egg. He didn't give you what you wanted, but he gave you what was for your good. And you see, God is so good, so loving, so wise that he will only give you what you would have asked for if you knew everything that he knows. God is so good, so loving, so wise, he will only give you what you would have asked for if you knew everything he knows. And the best thing that he can give us is the Holy Spirit. In the parallel passage in Luke chapter 11, Jesus makes clear that he will not only give good things, but he will give the Holy Spirit to those who ask him. So I want to tell you a story about a man named Jack Miller and his daughter, Barbara. Later in both of their adult lives, they wrote a book together called Come Back, Barbara. You see, Jack Miller was a Presbyterian pastor and a professor who taught at Westminster Theological Seminary outside of Philadelphia. He was the founder of World Harvest Mission and the family of New Life Presbyterian churches. And when his daughter Barbara turned 18, she rejected the faith. Despite the fact that she had previously professed faith in Jesus, joined their church when she was 16, when she turns 18, she tells her father Jack and her mother Rosemary, I hate your values, I hate your rules, I hate your morals, I'm not a Christian and I'm not gonna live that way anymore. And then she storms out of the room, slams the door, leaving her parents, calling after her, come back, Barbara. And so later, many years later, father and daughter write this book together entitled, Come Back, Barbara. And it, it tells the long story of a prodigal daughter, Barbara, who decides to go her own way, leave for the far country, and she makes a train wreck of her life. But you know, the book is not really about a prodigal daughter. The book is about a prodigal father and mother who were just as lost, if not more so than Barbara. They just didn't realize it. You see, the, the gospel that Barbara rejected was not really the true gospel. She rejected the false gospel her parents initially embraced and espoused. And it was only through this story of rebellion that the father and mother came to realize how lost they were and how much they really needed Jesus. And then and only then did Barbara discover the true gospel for herself as well. You see, the, the false gospel of the Miller family was not the true gospel, but a gospel of moralism. That was the pearl that Jack and Rosemary were pushing on Barbara. They believed that if you put your faith in God and work hard, then God is obligated to reward you. 
And the primary reward that they were expecting, especially as a a ministry couple, was that their kids would grow up to be well-behaved, obedient Christians. That was the pearl that they pushed. That was the false pearl that Barbara rejected. But it was only through this painful experience that they realized how they all needed Jesus and how far from God they actually were. But you know how it happened. Do you know where the transformation began in Jack and Rosemary's life? It began when they started to pray. So I want to share a a couple excerpts from this book where Jack Miller very honestly describes this painful experience and what he learned through it. And so listen as he writes, I was angry and ashamed. For the first time, I was prepared to admit that I was wounded. In my numbness, I wondered what I should be learning from God. What was I supposed to do now? Now that Barbara had rejected the faith. Many times we parents fall right here by not taking the time to wait upon the Lord in prayer to ask with confident faith for his wisdom and our understanding of how to relate to our children. But when we earnestly and sincerely claim the transforming wisdom of the spirit, what we learn is surprising. We ask for the transforming presence of the spirit from the father as promised by Jesus. And then when he visits us, he reveals that it has been very wrong to give way to despair Despair of God's help for the child is unbelief, and that is the gravest of sins. Such pessimism often leads parents into a second mistake, one that the spirit is eager to overcome. It is simply that in our doubts and anxieties, we give God very little opportunity to be God over the situation. We read books, we seek out counselors, we talk endlessly about our problem. We're so eager to find the magic bullet that will cure all our disease and to do anything to bring about an immediate recovery of the prodigal and free us from our pain that we fail to see that we too are far from God. Stated positively, the father wants to bring us as parents back to the intimate fellowship of his house. He's so very wise. He knows it's silly of us to try to bring our children to the Father's home when we ourselves are not living in its joy and in its warmth. So his method is to bring us near to his own heart and to experience his peace. And then, by our changed lives, we begin to magnetize the child to return to the abundance of the Father's house. The Spirit's aim is to overcome our restless human wisdom and our hasty actions. His supreme concern is for us to get to know the Father well and to wait on him in prayer, for wisdom to learn how to touch the inner life of the many Barbaras in our lives. See, what I love about this passage, and I don't think I saw any of this until the last week or two, but Jesus knows... (laughs) Jesus knows that pearl pushing is a special danger for Christians in particular. Why? Because once we think that we've got the truth from God, the message of the gospel, we assume that it is our job to force it, to impose it upon others. But we can't resort to pressure tactics. 
We've got to resist the temptation to manipulate and to control the people around us, the ones that we most love, because that's not, that's not how God deals with us. And we have to remember when it comes to our kids that God loves your kid more than you do. And God's heart breaks over your child more than your heart ever will. And that is why Jesus encourages us to pray, regardless of what the situation is, regardless of the relationship, regardless of the problem, the predicament. He encourages us to pray and he gives us these promises to assure us that we will be heard because why? Prayer will unleash the power of God in our life and in our relationships. So let me close with a brief word. First, for those who may not be Christians, and then second, for those who are. See, first of all, if you're not yet a Christian or not sure if you're a Christian, what I want you to realize is that Jesus, Jesus refuses to use force to gain entry into your life. Jesus will not force his way into your life. Instead, do you know what he does? He asks, he seeks, and he knocks. Revelation chapter three, verse 20, Jesus says, behold, I stand at the door and knock, and anyone who hears my voice and opens the door, I will come in to be with that person now and forever. There's a well-known painting by a man named Holman Hunt that hangs in the chapel of Keeble College at Oxford, and it's called The Light of the World. And the painting depicts Jesus knocking on a door, but the genius of this painting is that on that door, there, there's no handle, there's no latch, there's no, no, no doorknob. And that was deliberate on the artist's part because what he wanted to demonstrate is that this door can only be opened from the inside. Jesus knocks, but we have to open. Jack Miller, this pastor that I'm telling you about, is the one who actually coined the phrase, Cheer up, you're worse than you think. And he discovered that truth through the whole story with his daughter Barbara. What he came to realize is that the true gospel is that you're worse than you think. You're more sinful than you ever dared think and yet at the very same time, in and through Jesus Christ, you're more loved than you've ever imagined. The gospel is that Jesus has already done everything that is necessary to restore you in relationship to himself and to renew the whole world. Jesus lived the life that you and I should have lived. He died the death that you and I deserve to die and he rose to new life in order to offer his new life to us. But he will not use force to impose the gospel upon us like some kind of ideology. He asks, he seeks, and he knocks. Right now, he is already knocking. The next move is yours. Jesus' hand is on the knocker. Your hand has to reach towards the latch. He won't force his way into your life. But if you want him, if you want him, all you have to do is ask. But for those who are Christians, who already consider themselves Christians, what I'd like to do is show you one last thing. This section of the Sermon on the Mount ends with the golden rule in verse 12. So whatever you wish that others would do to you, do also to them, for this is 
the law and the prophets. Now, the golden rule, this is one of the most famous, one of the most popular, one of the most well-known, one of the most sublime statements of Jesus. But the question we should be asking is, what is it doing here? What is it doing here? Of all places, why does Jesus introduce the golden rule at just this point? Well, the verse begins with the word so, or therefore, which means that Jesus is linking back and summing up everything that he's just said about not pushing pearls and about the promise of prayer with the golden rule. So what is he trying to say? Don't push your pearls on other people, but instead ask, seek, and knock in prayer. Why? Because this is not only what you would want others to do for you, but this is what Jesus has done for you. This is not only how you would want others to treat you, this is how Jesus treats you. Jesus didn't push his pearls on us. Instead, he came to us in humility and weakness. He, he freely offers the gospel and is willing to suffer alongside the word rather than imposing an ideology upon us by force. He allowed himself, therefore, to be t- attacked and trampled underfoot by those who didn't appreciate the message, but it was all worth it. It was worth it to him to go to the cross. Why? So that he might freely offer you the pearl of great price, the treasure hidden in the field, the kingdom of God, life with him. And if you take that gospel now freely, deep into your heart and into your life, then it transforms you to become a person like Jesus himself who doesn't impose upon others but freely offers the truth that God presents to us in humility and weakness, even to people who don't appreciate it, so that we might be like our Heavenly Father, who is kind even to the ungrateful. You see, if the gospel really is operating at the center of our, of our heart and of our lives, well, then we can resist the temptation to manipulate and control. We don't have to resort to pressure tactics. Instead, we're free to love people the way that Jesus loved us, in humility, in weakness, and yes, even sometimes suffering. And what Jesus is saying is that that, that sums up everything that the law and the prophets are saying. The law and the prophets, all the scriptures, what are they telling us? They're telling us that the the end result of the Christian life, the end result of God's work in us by his grace is that we would love God with all of our heart, mind, soul, and strength, and that we would love our neighbor as ourselves, which means that we are never mean, but always generous, never harsh, but always understanding, and never cruel, but always kind. So what I want you to realize is that in Jesus Christ, you already have everything you need for yourself and and for those you love the most. So if you're facing some kind of need, if you're looking for something and you don't know where to find it or where even to look, or if every door that you've previously tried has been shut in your face, just remember, all you need to do is ask. Let me pray for us. Father, we acknowledge that there are many problems that we face in life for ourselves and for those who are closest to us. But help us to realize that some of the predicaments that we face are predicaments of our own making,
because we've been pushing pearls on others, imposing our views on them. And so the problem may not really be with them, it's more with us. And so, Father, rather than manipulating and controlling the people around us, help us to realize that the answer to this predicament is prayer. Help us to latch on to these promises that the one who asks will receive, the one who seeks will find, and to the one who knocks, the door will be opened. Help us to come to you in prayer so that we might unleash the power of God in our lives and in the lives of those we love the most. We pray in Jesus' name, amen.